Welcome to Stories from the NNI. I am Lisa Friedersdorf, and I'm the director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Today, I am joined with Martin Bendayan, CEO and co-founder of MetaShield. Prior to founding MetaShield, Martin worked at retail branding giant Bonjour and as a managing director of Glory Capital, a New York City-based private equity fund. Martin, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? First of all, Lisa, thank you for having me. Uh, and sure, uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the father of five active boys. I began uh, my career, as uh, you mentioned, in a very large uh, licensing and brand management company, Bonjour International, which at the time was handling uh, over $5 billion of uh, licensed product goods sold. Uh, from there, I transitioned to commercial real estate in New York City. I would say around 2008, around the time of the uh, financial collapse, and shortly thereafter, uh, things dried up in the investment world, and uh, I began to talk with a friend of mine who ended up being my co-founder, uh, Bill Bickmore, and we started to work on some different technologies. We were working with some very uh, experienced uh, retirees from uh, large companies as consultants. Through this small research and development, we blossomed into a dynamic advanced materials company. Well, that's great, and that's a, that's a really exciting transition. I read on your website that you produce advanced materials designed to, to upgrade ordinary products without adding uh, noticeable size, weight, or any sort of visible distortion. Can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the technology that makes this possible? Sure. So this is a, a formula platform approach, and it consists of, as you said, durable, transparent, and highly tunable coatings. And how that is possible is by using the properties of functional materials. There are a wide variety of properties that you could impart on ordinary objects without changing the product itself. These nanoparticles are very small materials, sometimes even at the atomic scale. These particles, it's hard to imagine, but when objects are very large, they have certain properties. When you shrink them down to a nano scale, they sometimes start to take on different properties. We make coatings that are highly tunable. Uh, so we have coatings that provide UV protection, dust resistance, oil resistance, stronger glass. And to do that with a coating that's not only transparent, but 50 times thinner than a human hair, really speaks to the promise of advanced materials. And the appeal to large OEMs and Fortune 500 companies is that we can improve their products without noticeably altering the appearance. And we can do it in a way that's easy to apply. But we're working right now with a large cosmetic uh, OEM. They make co cosmetic packagings for uh, compacts. Uh, they have issues with fingerprints. They have issues with staining, uh, with dust. And so we have one coating that really solves a lot of the issues that they have. So we're upgrading their product, basically not changing the product itself. So you mentioned um, the application and, and being able to, um, and your website describes a little bit about um, the simplicity of the, the application and drying process. Can you share any details about how that is done? So I would say overall taking a step back that the, the interesting thing about uh, our technology is that the technology itself uh, wasn't the hardest part. And the analogy that I like to use uh, when it comes to research and development is that it's easy to get a boat to work in a swimming pool. That is to say, it's easy to get 
technology to work in a laboratory. I would say relatively easy. But when you take the boat into the ocean and all of the vicissitudes that come along with that and all of the challenges and the degradating factors, uh, that is a, a much different challenge. And uh, in the technology world, that is called the valley of death. And for good reason. That's where many startup companies and early stage technology companies fall in bridging to the commercial world. And the analogy really isn't about just durability. It's all about also about viability in the B2B space. And one essential element of that is simplicity. We took an extra 18 months of time, resources, and development to make sure that our products could be compatible with the demands of high-throughput manufacturing. And that not only requires an easy method like spray coating, but quick drying is essential to moving the product forward to the next step in the manufacturing process. I think one of the challenges in the advanced material space is bridging that gap, having very cool, interesting technology, very great properties, but not being able to focus on the end. And the end is to remember that a technology company is a company. It's a commercial enterprise. And you know we have a business focus. We're merchants first, and we really think when we're developing the technology about the customer and how the customer can use it in the easiest way possible. And so it was a, it was a bit of a challenge uh, to get that technology out of the lab, uh, but thankfully uh, we took the time and hopefully did it right. You know, m many of the companies that, that we talk to share stories about how they, they reached a, a point in the commercial development where they needed to pivot. And I read that you began in the solar market, but have shifted to glass. Could, could you talk about that um, pivot a little bit? So we, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, began in the uh, solar industry. We were looking to make uh, certain uh, nanotechnology-based uh, films uh, that would use the plasmonic effect of nanoparticles to help boost the efficiency of solar cells. In fact, we were successful in uh, a niche market called the triple junction solar cells, which are very uh, advanced solar cells used on satellites. Um, and we were in the process of translating to crystalline. It's in terms of you know how we shifted, I would say more we we were shifted. What we realized was that the coating technology in which we were housing or embedding these nanoparticles had some very interesting properties on their own. For instance, we discovered that it made glass twice as strong and it had the ability to be highly tunable. And once this word started getting out, large you know, OEMs started to approach us and said, well, you know, that seems interesting. Uh, solar's nice, but can you do this for us? And can you do that for us? And so, you know, when looking at the uh, solar industry, you know, validation is a very long process. We were being presented with opportunities that had much shorter validation timeframes and that were more uh, immediate opportunities. And so we're still working on solar, but we, we were, uh, I guess, pulled along by uh, more exciting potentials. That's a great story. Thank, thank you very much. I've got a, a couple of questions that really f refer to maybe advice for people who are uh, just getting started. With your background in private equity, I'm sure that you've seen startups struggle or outright fail. Do you have advice for you know students or, or others that are thinking about starting a high-tech or advanced materials company? So, you know... A few things. 
as, as you know, experience is the best teacher. And, you know, as a finance uh, professional, uh, getting involved in an industry is really the best way to obtain focused and specific knowledge of that industry. Uh, going to trade shows, figuring out who are the players, the strong horses, the weak horses. I would say that it's very important to try to avoid uh, rabbit holes, uh, projects that have an adverse cost-benefit ratio. Keep in mind, when you raise money, you're a steward of that money. And if you want to make an investment uh, for, for your investors, 5x or 10x, which is to say five times or 10 times or more of their investment, it's important to do that not only on the grand scale, but also on the smaller scale. So before you get involved in even a small specific project, determine whether that project is worth not only the cost, but many more times the cost and the time and the resources it will take to complete. As founders, we look at ourselves as supplicants looking for financing and, in essence, uh, quote-unquote begging uh, for, for money with hat in hand. But the truth is, really, VCs and private equity funds and professionals, they are desperate to put money to work. They have tremendous pressure to do so. Their jobs are on the line. And they have a tremendous amount of money to put to work. But you have to check the right boxes first. That's good idea, a good concept a fantastic management team, differentiating factors, compelling technology, scalability, etc. If you can check those boxes, the money is virtually unlimited. And I'll say one final thing that is is also I think made uh, you know a big difference for me is you you read about in you know newspapers, magazines, you see all these big names and you know Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and it's important to understand that they are all where they were all where you are right now at one point they're in this small office or a garage or whatever it is they were there there was nothing about them that was predestined at birth that they should achieve great things I think their greatest achievement was that they built a company whose dynamics were consistent with their personalities that's why they can execute and make it look relatively easy because it's really an extension of themselves that is really great and, and inspiring advice. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. We know that, that young companies have their ups and downs uh, along the technology development pathway, taking a research idea into commercialization. Can, can you share a, a strategy or a decision that you made along the way that in hindsight you, you would have done differently? Uh, just one. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, everybody's got those. And, uh, you know, I guess that's always part of the process. I would say that our primary setback uh, was a little bit uh, counterintuitive. Our problem was uh, too much of a good thing. Uh, some folks might shoot me for saying this, but, you know, we were very fortunate in that we received a disproportionate amount of positive feedback uh, and attention from very large OEMs of Fortune 500 companies. And um, we took on too many projects at the same time when we should have been uh, more focused. Uh, look, it's hard to say no. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline uh, when a you know, $20 billion company comes knocking to say, you know, it's really not for us. I can't do this right now. I think sometimes we, we you know, went out on a, out on a limb uh, too much. And uh, right now we really brought it... Uh, closer to about three projects, which is uh, three products, which is probably one more than we should be doing. But uh, but uh, it really is focused around our core competencies and our core technologies that we've developed. Uh, sometimes you have to work smarter, not harder. And uh, I'm not working as hard as I was six months ago, but we're doing better. 
<laughs> well, well, maybe maybe that means you found a little balance. So, so your offices are in New York City, but but you produce in in St. George, Utah. Can can you tell us how how that came to pass and and how that works for you? So it really has to do with uh, myself and uh, the co-founder. Uh, he was a uh, scientist who has a love of business, and I'm a businessman who has a love of science. And so, you know, he developed really the core of uh, the R&D. Uh, well, did it together, but he he was uh, spearheading it, and he lives out there. And I was uh, developing the business side, and you know, I live here and work in uh, downtown uh, New York City. I would say overall that it works very well. We wanted to have robust technology, you know, that would sell itself, uh, but also to be able to communicate that in a compelling and very dynamic uh, way. So having the New York's expertise and background and presentation and branding, along with serious technical chops coming out of the West Coast facility, uh, is a really great fusion, and it makes for a fantastic uh, one-two punch, and it's really been working well for us. Well, that's that's great. That's a a great combination that you uh, that that you describe there. So we've come to the the end of our time today, um, and I I really appreciate you taking this this time this morning to to talk with us. Do you have any other closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I feel like I said too much, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but. Look, uh, you know, this, uh, there, there are profound changes coming, and uh, I think if we you know, open our eyes and, and see what's out there, uh, I think we're living in very exciting times, and I think we, we really underestimate. I mean, look at uh, the Internet. It changed the world within five, six, seven years. So a new technology can really have profound effects in a very uh, short amount of time. And uh, we could see another uh, another phase like we had from 1900 to 1969. We could see another phase of development in our engagement with the physical world, uh, which, you know, hasn't really changed since, uh, you know, for the last 40 years. Uh, we, we, we could start to see some really amazing things. And, you know, maybe, maybe we'll see some flying cars. Thank you for joining us today for this story from the NNI. If you would like to learn more about nanotechnology, please visit www.nano.gov or email us at info at And of course, check back here for more stories. 